Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to the monsoons of April. Come. Come in and stomp your feet, shake it off like a pooch, grab beverage treats, chum, and settle. And of course, know that you are welcome here, too. Yes, this is Tales to Terrify. I'm still Lawrence Santoro. This remains the Nook, and this is our second of three Bram Stoker Award-nominated short fiction shows for the year. Before we immerse ourselves in the fiction of the night, I want to spend a few moments suggesting that you spend just one cent shy of a dollar U.S. and pick up a copy of the new ebook from Crystal Lake Publishing. The book is called Horror 101, The Way Forward, which, in the words of Mort Castle, who introduces Horror 101, is a book in the spirit of J.N. Jerry Williamson. I suspect many of you know who Jerry Williamson was. J.N. Williamson was an author who wrote over 40 novels, many, many short stories, edited a number of anthologies, put together a lot of collections, and was notable for devoting a lot of his time to helping fellow authors and authors-to-be to better themselves. One of those helped was Mort Castle himself. Another was Gary Brownback. Another was David Nile Wilson. And the list goes on and on. Well, in that spirit of helping writers and others within the field of horror to get better at what they do, Horror 101 provides 873 pages of advice suggestions, tips, recollections about how it was and is done. It is a course of study in an e-file on the craft and career of horror. Some of the people involved, let's see, and I, and I skim here for time's sake only. 
Jack Ketchum, Graham Masterson, Edward Lee, Lucy A. Snyder, Emma Audsley, R.J. Cavender, Scott Nicholson, Weston Oaks, Taylor Grant, Paul Kane, Lisa Morton, Shane McKenzie, Dean M. Drinkle, Simon Marshall-Jones, Robert W. Walker, Don Daria, Glenn Rolfe, Harry Shannon, Chet Williamson, Lawrence Santoro, hmm... Thomas Smith, Blaze McRobb, Rocky Wood, Ellen Datlow, Ian Rob Wright, Kenneth W. Kane, Daniel I. Russell, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Rick Carufel, Ben Eads, Teresa Derwin, Rena Mason, Steve Rasnick, Tem, Michael A. Arnson, Joe Mainhard, John Palisano, Mark West, Stephen Saville, and a writer so famous he is required to remain anonymous. Horror 101 The Way Forward is, as mentioned, published by Crystal Lake Publishing. It's edited by Joe Mainhart and Emma Audsley. The cover art is by Ben Baldwin, and the formatting is by Robert Swartwood. Horror 101 is now out and available on Amazon for just 99 U.S. cents. So there. And just one more brief interruption before we plunge into this night's horrors. Don't forget, the District of Wonders now has five neighborhoods. In addition to science fiction, horror, crime, and pulp fiction, the District's new hood is devoted to tales of fantasy. Far-Fetched Fables is the post office. Its address, quite simply, is farfetchedfables.com. New shows go up every Monday, so I hope to meet you there among the teeming streets, the fragrant bazaars, the endless plains, and the mountain caves. There, there be dragons. Oh, shut up, Lawrence, and get to the fiction We are now at the midpoint of this year's telling of all six Bram Stoker Award-nominated short fiction tales, or we will be at midpoint after tonight's first tale, The Hunger Artist. To remind you farther, so far as the Horror Writers Association is concerned, short fiction is a story that is, at its longest, 7,499 words. At 7,500 words, a short tale magically becomes long fiction. The Hunger Artist is our first Stoker-nominated tale for the evening, and it's by Lisa Manetti. Lisa is no stranger to the Stokers. Her debut novel, The Gentling Box, won the Stoker Award for first novel. Her latest books include Death Watch, a collection of two thematically linked novellas, which collection includes the Bram Stoker-nominated Dissolution, and The New Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, who are, by the way, reincarnated as twin white puss The book, as I understand it, is available both in adult and young adult editions. Lisa has also authored a macabre gag book, 51 Fiendish Ways to Leave Your Lover, and she's written nonfiction books and numerous articles and short stories that have appeared in newspapers, magazines, anthologies, et al., Recent works include Resurgem in Dead Set, a zombie anthology, Condemned in Legends of the Mountains, State 4, the Bram Stoker-nominated tale 1926, A Fall River Halloween, 
in Shroud Magazine, Spyglass Hill in Fear of the Dark Anthology, and Paraphilia in Zippered Flesh. Her story, Everybody Wins, was made into a short film by director Paul Lydon, starring Malin Ackerman, and released under the title Bye Bye Sally. Here is Lisa Minetti's The Hunger Artist. The ultimate effects of starvation are identical, whether the process be gradual or rapid, occupying days or years, and death results when the body has lost six-tenths of its weight. William Gilman Thompson, 1905 Many serial killers are pathological liars. Dr. Jack Levin, criminologist, Northeastern University, 2012 1973 All this time, and there were still the dreams... I've heard the wind suffing in the pines, heard the pines themselves creaking, listing like shipboard masts when they swayed. It was summer, but it was terribly cold, the damp that settled on everything. Tables and blankets and floorboards and skin fled inward to her bones. There was never any moon lighting up these dreadful nightscapes, but she always saw her sister, Callie, standing barefoot by the lake, white gown plastered against the skeletonized frame of her body hands rapidly opening and closing like a pair of gobbling beaks. I'm hungry, Iva, she mourned. So cold, so hungry. And it was always a shock when Iva went toward her, and, moonlight or no, underneath the white cotton gown, she could clearly see and count her sister's ribs. Then Iva would wake shivering under the hospital blanket. Sometimes she rang for the nurse. Sometimes it was enough to turn on the lamp and watch her fingers pinching the healthy flesh of her own hip or arm. Knowledge, certainty, that she was no longer the prisoner starving in the New England woods sixty years ago was a balm that warmed her, to a point. Nothing, no one could soothe her completely. After all, her beloved Callie was dead. Everything had gone wrong back then, two years that Iva still envisioned as a meager handful of dull feathery ashes. No gust or exhalation ever stirred or scattered them. Sometimes she might forget the hideous physical ordeal when scenes from the trial intruded on her consciousness. Sometimes, recalling the shame and the heart-pounding fear that surrounded the weeks in court when she was afraid Gretchen Burkhart would be acquitted and win, upset her equilibrium so badly that visions of her own suffering and Callie's extremis seemed almost benign by contrast. Both events were terrible, and the memories that were ashes lay eternally unmoving in her palm, she thought, because one day, when they laid out her body, her elbows crooked, snugged to her waist, her hands crossed, they'd be pressed against her heart. That had been burnt past charring, too, during those black, seemingly endless two years, ashes to ashes. 1912. Just tell us in your own words, Miss Fredericks. Thomas Vining began, one hand gently curving the rail in front of the witness box, as if just by standing close to Iva, the prosecutor could steady her nerves. She swallowed, but there was no spittle to moisten her throat, and her voice was thin. I saw an ad in one of the Boston papers for what sounded like a wonderful rest cure. Callie, she... maybe I indulged her too much, but she was my baby sister, and our parents were dead. 
Callie was only 12 when Mother died. Still a little girl. 1973. Is that you, Maggie? Iva turtled. Her breasts had shrunk to the point where they were no longer an inconvenience, smoothly rolling onto her back to look up at the face of a young woman whose hand lightly skimmed her own. No, of course not, she said. Margaret was twenty years older than I am, and she's been dead a long time, and your skin is soft. Iva paused, aware that she was looking at short brown hair, asymmetrically cut, bareheaded, no cap, instead of crisp whites, a peasant blouse. You're not a nurse. Jill Davis, I'm a reporter. Well, a stringer, really. Come to unravel something? A stringer is a sort of freelance journalist. My dear, I'm merely old, not ignorant. Of course, I meant... She stopped, cheeks reddening. In the brief silence that ensued, Iva pressed the electric button near her right hand, and the top third of the bed glided upward until she was sitting, and now she could see the girl was wearing blue jeans, sandals. Every year, since she'd turned 99, about a week before her birthday, the local paper sent someone to interview the oldest woman in Melton Lake. When she hit a hundred, there'd been articles written up in the Portsmouth Herald, the Manchester Union Leader, even the Boston Globe. But an old woman was old news, she guessed. So here was this hippie, this stringer, to ask the same tedious questions about whether she drank liquor, a weak champagne cocktail at 5 p.m., a glass of wine with dinner, smoked cigarettes, only when she could catch one these days. Alas, they gave her indigestion, exercised. Absolutely. On warm days, she pushed a wheelchair in front of her and walked to that pathetic little fountain out back, then sat and read a book in the sunshine. And that was surely exercise aplenty when you hit 102. What she ate, anything that didn't hurt her teeth when she chewed, what she did for amusement. The main thing was avoiding the nursing home's idea of arts and crafts, which consisted of gluing a mirror in the center of a paper plate, cementing macaroni around the rim, then spray-painting the whole shebang gold and attaching string to hang the monstrosity. And most importantly, what did she, Iva Fredericks, believe was the secret behind achieving her great age? But Jill Davis surprised her. I'm supposed to be writing a spec piece for the Millerton Record about the root causes of anorexia, and then, you know, throw in some historical background about turn-of-the-century fasting girls, tie it into new trends in teenage fad dieting, but the feature editor over there has about as much imagination as a humphead wrasse. I did some digging, read about the trial back in 1912, and... And I guess you found out the term aphorism is a complete misnomer, Iva said. Jill pulled out a pack of Terryton 100s, extending it toward the old woman, and Iva took one. Jill lit them both. Iva dragged on hers, but merely let the smoke roll around her mouth briefly before she exhaled. Truth is hard to come by. Lies are easy. Maybe I wasn't too rich, but I was definitely too thin. Jill nodded, absently blowing tarnished gray smoke downward toward the steno pad perched on her knee. Iva caught the wink of a small gold ring on the pinky of the hand the reporter used to rapidly flip through what must have been fifty pages of notes in tiny, precise handwriting. There's something missing. I must have read a thousand damn articles on microfiche and the court transcript, and the story's out of whack, completely off-kilter. Her eyes were ink-colored, and Iva saw herself haloed inside their hard, bright shine. And that's before you take into account that despite the murder charge, 
Gretchen Burkhart was convicted only of manslaughter before you consider that she was pardoned by the governor and that she only served two years out of twenty. Jill had wheeled Iva's chair outside to the grounds of the small old-fashioned hospital while Iva clung to the younger woman's arm and ambled slowly alongside before sitting down where they'd parked under a huge maple. What's missing, Iva said, was stricken from the official record. Well, I just assumed that, naturally, but what's really goddamn odd is that usually you can get a whiff of what happened or what was said from books or newspapers, especially contemporary newspapers. Iva shook her head. Money can buy a lot, Jill. A lot more than someone your age truly realizes. I paid. Or, rather, through me, my lawyer paid. A great deal to keep the details you so cleverly inferred from showing up anywhere. Bullshit. Did you know that after Lizzie Borden's trial, Lizzie bought up the entire edition? The entire printing run of thousands of copies, that is, of a book called The Fall River Tragedy? Lizzie was rich but I had a great deal more money than she had. Iva saw Jill's gaze narrow, and she could read that the younger woman was considering the idea. Local scribes, okay, no problem. Guys who, back in 1912, earned maybe ten bucks a week, and were probably bought off regularly by hometown politicians for a few beers, a whiskey, a good meal. But what about reporters from Boston or New York? Could she have scuttled them, too? She had the means, though. Not to mention the Wren County prosecutor said there wasn't enough money to go to trial, so Iva picked up the tab. So what was the big, deep, dark secret you suppressed, Iva? It's very easy to grind someone into submission when you're starving them, Iva said. And it's even easier to hem them in if you convince them, if they believe, you have occult power. 1912 Miss Fredericks, can you tell us about this picture? Vining asked, handing it to her. That's a picture of me and Maggie, Margaret Woodbridge. When Callie and I were growing up, Maggie was our nursemaid, and even after we were adults, she stayed on with us. She was like a second mother, really, and... The photo had been taken a few weeks after Maggie had come all the way from Australia to rescue her and Callie. The telegram. Callie sent it. Somehow sneaked it out of the filthy cabin they shared at Lake Mirror Rest Sanitarium. Maggie, bless her, had sailed immediately she wasn't in time, because Callie's weight had dropped to 40 pounds. Iva felt her face flush. Is that what she looked like almost a month after Maggie had taken her away from that terrible place? Her face was nothing more than a skull thinly layered with dark flesh. The eyes themselves were vacant, glittering, her gaze empty, as if impossibly remote and infinitesimally tiny stars had been caught inside the deeps of her eye sockets and flickered there indifferently meaninglessly. Her cheeks were smudged hollows with the sear look of ancient parchment. Her pale hair lay in knotty clumps, barely concealing huge bald patches. Her starched dress, size four, had been pinned, but it was still so oversized it appeared as if it might fall from her slight frame the instant she stood up. Vining passed it to the jurors, and Iva could see them cringe with revulsion. Looking at the picture was like looking at a ravaged mummy that had been spelled back to half-life. Worst of all, Iva clearly remembered how she carefully primped so she'd look her best. His voice startled her. Miss Fredericks, how did you come to be in this condition? In this photo you weighed 68 pounds. Not kilos, pounds. And before you began treatment with Mrs. Burkhart, your weight, 
completely normal for someone who stands five feet two inches tall, was 104 pounds. How did it happen, Miss Fredericks? Iva's chest heaved. Her stomach nodded, but she took a deep breath. She advertised the only doctor, she called herself, who was a licensed fasting specialist. She advertised that she'd cured everything from syphilis to ulcers to blindness. Over and over, she told us and stated in writing, all functional disease is the result of improper diet, Iva said. In her mind's eye, grim sequences and flashing images unspooled. Callie unwrapped the pamphlet with such excitement she tore the paper. Iva read it, but Callie studied the damn thing and within hours of its arrival could quote whole passages verbatim. Iva knew that some of their relatives thought the girls had too much money and too much time, and that, as a result, hobbies and interests became fads with them. Aunt Caroline said as much when the girls refused meat at her table. Being a vegetarian is a luxury. Those who work for a living can't pick and choose what they eat. If you girls were shipwrecked, you'd soon enough be eating fish and fowl. So, when they decided to take the fasting cure, they told no one. Gretchen Burkhart professed to be uncertain about whether they were candidates for her cure. Callie told the osteopath she had a tipped uterus that caused awkward pains. Iva complained of a feeling of torpor in her limbs. They expected massage and a carefully controlled but bracing diet that would cleanse them. They expected to be in a lakeside rest home with awning-covered balconies. They got nothing but a cup of watery broth made from canned tomatoes, served twice a day, and hot water enemas that lasted six hours at a time. Within a few weeks, neither of them could really walk. They were stinking, wasted scarecrows lying on narrow cots, listening to the rain patter against the metal roof of the cabin that was really a shed, listening to Gretchen Burkhart and her nurses rifle their trunks for clothes, shoes, jewelry, books, anything they could lay their hands on. But even that wasn't the worst of it. 1973 I know one of the medical doctors testified that you and Callie would have needed to drink 50 quarts of that broth a day just to survive. And I'm not sure he was taking into account those enemas, Jill said. It's pretty clear Gretchen was a chlismophiliac. You know, someone with an obsession for enemas. Humiliating, Iva shook her head. And worse was having her or one of her assistants check the contents, like someone sieving for precious metals. In her mind's eye, she felt the rude shock of the rubber tube, the onrush of the hot water, heard the ugly spatter of liquid feces pouring into an enamel pail. In her books, she called them enamata, trying to sound high-flown, Iva shrugged. And you're spot on about her obsession, because people who are starving have chronic diarrhea. What about the other symptoms? Jill asked. Iva looked up at the canopy of leaves over her head. Funny how your mind plays tricks. Sometimes I could only notice what was happening when I looked at Callie, as if the same things weren't happening to me. The hair is pouring off your head, but you grow a kind of thin fur over your body. Lanugo, Jill said. I read about that. Survival at its most basic. The body's attempt to stay warm. I drooled all the time, but I couldn't chew, Iva said. For a moment she put her hands over her face. My god, it was awful. Cried all the time because I wanted to eat and I couldn't. This was after Margaret came from Australia, after Callie died. Some part of me saw how much worse it was for Callie. 
When she lay on her back, the bones of her spine could be seen through her abdomen. I doubted I'd actually seen it. I looked a long time, years and years, before I found a picture that showed how someone's spine could be visible when they lay face up. You know where I finally found it? In a book that showed piles of corpses in Auschwitz, Iva winced. My sister, she was like a carcass that's been picked clean by scavenger birds. 1912. Gretchen Burkhart was going to take the stand that day, and because she and Maggie might be called as rebuttal witnesses, naturally they weren't allowed in open court, but there were pictures in the newspaper, and the prosecutor would be telling them about her testimony. The accused wore an elegant, narrow-waisted brown merino dress with a high lattice collar and a huge hat cascading with pheasant feathers that was straight out of the most recent edition of Ladies' Home Journal. Undoubtedly, Iva remarked dryly, the money for the fancy togs had come from Gretchen's depredations on Iva's own bank account. By then, both Iva and Maggie knew not only that Callie wasn't Mrs. Burkhart's first victim— but that she'd managed to seize assets, jewelry, valuables, and property from other patients she'd killed as well. Hell, it turned out the land for Lake Mere Sanitarium came from one of her former patients. On direct testimony, with her lawyer jollying her along, Gretchen wove a charming tale fraught with outright lies. The tomato broth was merely a hot drink between meals. The Fredericks were allowed all the food they wanted to eat but they refused everything my nurses cooked for them, she began. It was very sad. But then, you know, Kelly told me other doctors had given up hope on her case, so she and Iva came to me as a last resort, she said. Nearby, artists sketched her face, the fluttering feathers on her hat, and the fan she coyly flashed at dramatic moments. Kelly, she declared, had absolutely given all the jewelry to Gretchen and the nurses as gifts. Callie had known she was dying, and appointed Gretchen as Iva's guardian because Iva was insane and had been deteriorating mentally for several years. Callie had not died of starvation, but from an organic colonic disease that originated in her childhood, and according to Gretchen Burkhart, nothing and no one could have saved the young woman. In fact, Callie was so grateful for the fact that I prolonged her life beyond what was expected, she changed her will Pens flew across reporters' notepads. The court reporter's typewriter beat the rhythm the scratching nibs kept time to. Gretchen Burkhardt appeared calm, but even the reporters could see that, as her testimony was drawing to a close, more and more frequently she glanced over at the prosecutor, and he was clearly itching to take her to task. Mrs. Burkhardt, Vining said. Doctor, Gretchen interrupted. I prefer to be called doctor. You have no medical degree, Mrs. Burkhart, the prosecutor said. His smile was knife-thin, and everyone knew he was about to tear her to shreds. 1973. All right, Jill said. I know Vining got a graphologist, a handwriting expert, who proved that Burkhart was full of shit. Kelly never wrote that codicil to her will. Gretchen Burkhart did. And he brought in experts who testified about her other cases. Not once when she performed the autopsy on one of her patients did she list starvation as the cause of death. It was always some half-assed diagnosis like paralyzed intestines, but plenty of other doctors completely contradicted her, her and her paid stooges, those so-called nurses who backed her up. There was only one who slipped, and it was her testimony that was expunged from the record, Iva said. 
There's a hint about Gretchen Burkhart's power over people in what Maggie said, too. She told the court that even though she knew the tomato broth was made from canned goods, Gretchen actually convinced her at times that everything was farm fresh, that the tomatoes had been raised locally, not purchased at some market, and therefore each serving had even more nutrients. That was impossible, of course. Tomatoes can't be harvested before the end of August in New Hampshire, and we began treatment at the end of February. Callie was dead by May. She watched Jill scribble the date and went on. There were days, Maggie said, she had to fight off what Gretchen was saying, that I was improving, had improved tremendously under her care, that Maggie must recall how deranged I'd been before the treatment started, how ill I'd been, and that Callie had been even sicker than I was. Maggie said she made herself remember that Gretchen was lying through her teeth by reminding herself over and over that two other patients, also young women, begged her to take them away from Lake Mere because they knew they were starving to death, and after the first ten days, they were already so weak they couldn't get away on their own. Disgusting. That woman was disgusting. Evil, Iva said. Of course, you know that when Maggie arrived, Gretchen Burkhart showed her someone else's corpse and said it was Callie. Iva herself had been too weak to make the trip to the funeral home or to the funeral, so her last memory of Callie was at her sister's deathbed, Callie's eyes starting from the sockets her fetid breath rattling, claw-like fingers grasping a thin cotton sheet drawn over the wasted body. Jill nodded, tried to foist off the wrong body on a woman who raised the girl practically from birth. That was stupid. But we know she was very smart, so what made her think she could get away with it? Was her ego that overblown? Was she drugging Maggie's tea or the broth she served you? Jill lit a cigarette. That'd be really rich. She detested pills so much she would have been the queen of the 60s anti-drug contingent. Maggie wasn't the only one who thought Gretchen Burkhart had some kind of hypnotic power she could use to force people to do what was against their own better judgment. 1911. You're looking ever so much stronger, miss. The doctor says it won't be long now before you're up and walking. Iva lay on a makeshift mattress on the bathroom floor. It had once really been a mattress, she thought, but maybe rats had gotten to it. And now it was little more than lumpy cotton batting wadded in a nest shape and covered with oilcloth. Above her hung a pail and a rubber hose. The end of the tube was in her rectum. She no longer had the strength to stand up and evacuate, so the oilcloth served as a sluiceway that disgorged her stinking brown water into an old privy hole. Didn't have the energy to get herself to the porcelain toilet, and the doctor still insisted the enemas were crucial to her treatment. Her nurse was prattling about being able to walk, as if Iva had been wheelchair-bound for a decade. Was it only last summer that she and Callie had trekked to Mount Kilimanjaro? It was painful lying on her side. Her bones, ribs, pelvis, and knee dug into what was left of her flesh. If only she could see Callie. But they had separated the sisters, and the nurse, Marina, said she was too weak to leave her cabin next door. Last week, Marina had carried Callie, the way a child carried a doll in her arms, over in the evenings. Could Callie have gotten so much worse so quickly? Tub time, Marina said. Iva wasn't sure how long she'd been lying on the floor and drifting, but at the sound of the nurse's voice, she felt herself being hoisted upward and then pushed into scalding water. She began to scream. Gretchen Burkhart's voice boomed from the doorway. You are not clean. Your stool is malodorous. Your breath is foul. And since you refuse to walk, I don't refuse. Iva was crying. 
but there were no tears. Her dehydration was too extreme. You refuse to walk, Gretchen interrupted. So the tub baths need to be hot. She put her own hand in briefly, and Iva registered that it emerged the boiled red of shellfish, and that was merely the osteopath's hand, not her whole body. Gordon, she directed, add another bucket and scrub her down. She's dirty. No, Iva said, feebly trying to cover her breasts. No. 1973. Gordon Fields, Jill said, nodding. He and his girlfriend, Marina Slade, the so-called nurse, both testified that he only lugged water to the cabin. He was just a hired hand, and never in the room when either you or Callie were given those baths, or the enemas. He and Marina were both spiritualists. They don't sound very spiritual to me. I'm not sure you understand. Iva shook her head. Give me another cigarette. And damn, is it almost five o'clock? I'd like a drink before I tell you about what happened next. Jill looked up at the slanting sun, shielding her eyes, and then glanced down at her watch. It's been five o'clock across the pond for at least five hours. Close enough for me. She opened a brightly striped wool shoulder bag she used as a tote and pulled out a mayonnaise jar she'd filled with almond and wine. Look, it's not the greatest, and I don't have glasses. I planned on snatching a couple from the hospital cafeteria. A lady knows when to forego niceties. Hand it over. Iva swigged, wiped her mouth with the back of her wrist, and passed the jar to Jill. If anyone, curious or otherwise, comes over here, this is a urine sample I'm bringing to my doctor, Jill said. So don't get caught swilling. They both began to laugh. 1911. It's very simple. Gretchen Burkhart said. Marina is not only a nurse. She's a talented medium. You'd be helping Callie, of course. She's still grieving for your mother, and she'll be stronger emotionally. It may be her best chance at getting well. Iva looked at her sister, blade thin, propped on pillows, and seated at a small round table between Marina and Gretchen. Gordon Field sat opposite. In the center of the table, pair of slates, like the ones used by school children, had been hinged together. Just now, they were lying open with a piece of ordinary white chalk lying on the one on the right. Let's try, please, Iva. There was nothing to lose, or so Iva thought. Gordon Fields closed the slates and latched them shut. The lights were extinguished, and Marina admonished them not to be frightened and to keep holding hands. She recited a prayer and asked Rose Fredericks if she would come and make herself known to her daughters. A long while passed, and then suddenly, in the pitch black, the sound of scratching on the slates could be heard. 1973. When they lit the candles, Callie opened the slates and the words, Flower Girls, Calla and Ivy, were written in chalk. My mother called us her Flower Girls, Iva said. She motioned for the jar of wine and Jill handed it to her, saying... I drank 90% of this. There's only a sip left. Go ahead and finish it. Iva nodded. Go on, Jill said. After that, that's when I started seeing Marina wearing Callie's silk robe and Gretchen wearing a diamond ring that had belonged to Mother. Do you think Callie told them, even accidentally? I think one of them found those words written in Callie's red leather diary. It was one of the things that was gone. Even Maggie couldn't find it. So they tricked her into thinking your mother was there and communicating. Oh, yes. All the usual japes and shenanigans, from trumpets floating in the air to ectoplasm to more and more detailed messages written on the slates. Did you believe it was real, Iva? 
I was out of my mind with hunger, cold, and fear. Did you think it was your mother? I was certain Callie came back to me. Jill flipped through her notebook and read, In 1926, Harry Houdini wrote, Distressed relatives catch at the least word which may remotely indicate the spirit which they seek is in communication with them. One little sign, even, which appeals to their waiting imagination, shatters all ordinary caution, and they are converted. Is that what happened to you? Iva lowered her eyes and shook her head. Callie, the dreams. Callie, barefoot by the lake, shuddering with cold. I'm hungry, Iva, she mourns. I'm so cold and so hungry. But you know that Gretchen Burkhart stole from you and others. She took money and jewelry, property. You know that she killed many, many patients, ten or fifteen others. She was arrested for practicing medicine without a license, even after she served time for murdering Callie. Iva gave a thin smile. Maggie told me those same things, over and over, all the rest of her life. Callie was starved to death, and I was nearly dead, but I'm still alive. I'm one hundred two, and still alive because Callie has never left my side. Thank you for letting us hear that, Lisa. Lisa Manetti says that after her mother passed away, she, Lisa, moved to the spooky old house in which she grew up. She reports that her mother hangs around on a daily basis, providing a kind of benign haunting, which somewhat freaks out the twin cats, Harry and Theo Houdini, but Lisa considers her mother's presence not only inspirational, but extremely helpful, especially when Lisa can't find her glasses, car keys, the checkbook, and Mom transports them onto nearby countertops or into Lisa's purse. Thanks again, Lisa. The Hunger Artist was narrated tonight by one of our go-to readers, Antoinette Bergen. Antoinette, whom I have never met, tells us she is twisted, dark, sarcastic, pessimistic, weird, and demented. Okay, well, she sounds rather adorable, but maybe adorable is what happens when all those various nasty elements combine and turn out something like Long Island iced tea. Antoinette is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate. I love that title and has been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy. She can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen, and she probably won't be upset if you follow her. I await my lime packet, but am perhaps just not jello worthy. Moving along to the evening's second Bram Stoker shortlisted tale, we'll next hear Primal Tongue by Mr. Michael Bailey. Michael Bailey is the multi-award-winning author of the novels Palindrome Hannah, Phoenix Rose, and Psychotropic Dragon. He is also the author of the short story and poetry collections Scales and Petals, 
and ink blots and blood spots. He's the editor of Pellucid Lunacy and the Chiral Mad Anthologies. His books have been recognized by the International Book Awards, the National Best Book Awards, Independent Publisher Book Awards, the USA News Best Book Awards, the London Book Festival, Forward Reviews, Book of the Year, This is Horror Anthology of the Year, the Indie Book Awards, and the Eric Hoffer Award. His short fiction and poetry can be found in anthologies and magazines around the world, including in the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Sweden, and South Africa. Here is Michael Bailey's Primal Tongue. Birkalin, Iolisum e Avention, said the woman in the terminal. She looked directly at him when she said it. Then she smiled and moved her attention to the cooing child in the stroller. She put her hand on the leg of the husband or boyfriend sitting next to her. Gil Sloat recognized the language as Danish, but couldn't understand a word of it, and wondered if they were talking about him. The man took his turn at Gil, glancing at him for only a moment before saying, Dioba, do are they dilit or nia leave, followed by a chuckle. Pogat or ont, she said, accepting his hand. We're in America, people. Speak American. Gill understood English was the common language spoken in the United States, but he had heard a Texan co-worker at one point say those exact words with a heavy drawl, and so that was his first thought after hearing this unfamiliar language as he waited for his plane. Now boarding flight 1096 to Baltimore slash Washington, said a staticky female voice from the only airline representative working gate J87. It intrigued him airports still used overhead paging to announce flights, ticketing and seating assignments and boarding passes and all other travel arrangements could be coordinated using internet and cellular technologies, yet a person... An attractive woman in an ugly blue uniform controlled the chaos people so often brought with them to lines. Common courtesy and common sense were rarities, especially at the airport. Frequent flyer platinum members may board at this time. Most airlines had eliminated first class altogether, but a half dozen silver, gold, platinum, or similar membership programs allowed certain passengers to board before the masses, followed by active duty military those with disabilities, and families with young children. These lucky airline minorities, as titles-slash-statuses were called, then had to luggage solemn through the impatient herd of coach passengers as they line-hopped to the front. Those with smartphones, tablets, and other handheld devices may board at this time. Gill imagined those words over the loudspeaker, followed by amoeba-like flow of techno-lemmings piling through the gate at once. Smartphones and tablets and other handheld device held high to protect their importance. Shoulders smashing shoulders. Men and women and children trampled beneath feet and luggage in rolling waves. An overabundance of passengers with carry-on luggage they refused to check. He also imagined the few, like himself, alone, standing in the back. Or seated like the Danish family, watching the chaos unfold instead of taking part. These were the people in the world which he could relate, the patient ones, those he'd like to understand. The Danish woman shared this mindset, 
He could see it in her eyes. The rapid boom in technology was partially to blame for the rest of the world's ruin. Devices invented to simplify life more often simplified the living. Let a person become dependent on portable technology and then watch that person get struck by a vehicle while absentmindedly crossing the street. It happened all the time. The chin-on-chest syndrome, when a person is so involved in their handheld device-slash-gadget-slash-toy, they forget to look up now and then. Zombies, all of them. Conversation occurred more often by keystroke nowadays than exchange of spoken word. And there Gil sat, hearing actual words of people he wanted so dearly to understand, and he couldn't understand them. The baby cooing was easier to translate than the Danish. The child wanted attention, tiny hands rising out from the stroke. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Maybe it was foreign cooing. Is there such a thing? Is all language the same until it's learned? Is there perhaps a common language shared by all? Something primal, unnecessary to learn? before we fuck it all up and disorient the world by segregating ourselves with language? Pogat won't, Gil said, copying what the woman had said. She looked up from the child. He hadn't meant to say the unfamiliar phrase aloud, but the terminal was so dead with people not talking that the words simply came out of his mouth, as if wanting to be heard. Tele du Dansk? Gil could tell it was a question by the inflection at the end and somehow knew she asked if he understood Danish. That much he could gather by the facial movements and her piqued curiosity. Her husband nodded and said, Go ever my day. Sorry, Gil said, feeling embarrassed. I don't speak Danish. The couple exchanged eyebrow furring before the woman spoke. 
She said the word slowly. But you know what was I said in Nadansk? For better or worse, you said, Why do so few Americans learn other languages? Is English the new common? Her English wasn't perfect, but she had easily translated his words and could speak the language countless times better than his butchering of Dansk, of which he understood zilch. Gil apologized again, admitted that he only repeated her words because he enjoyed the dialect, and he admitted to knowing only English. What was the first thing you said? Berkeley something? She said, rolling the words easily over her tongue with elegance and grace. Sounds beautiful. What does it mean? <laughs> it means, she said, her eyes searching the ceiling, I guess you could say what is real is like the fairy tales. If only that were... Passengers with special needs and those with children can now board, said the English static. The crowd of passengers without special needs and the childless sandwiched their masks closer to the front. Gil had his special needs. He needed to understand. Maybe people don't want to understand. The Danish couple rose and stood in the back of the line for a moment, looking around the others, searching for a path. The husband eventually shrugged his shoulders and twisted his palms into the air. Eh, he said, plane will not leave without... Still seated, Gil supposed he was right. Whether or not the plane left on time, it would not leave without its passengers. Seeing the couple standing there, together, made him suddenly feel alone. If only he and Nell were still together, he could stand by her side, hold her hand. Gil wore happiness like a mask, and Nell ran off with it. He could no longer hide his depression from the world. Michael Riley, please report to the podium. Michael Riley, please report to the podium for your standby seating assignment. Well, Gil said, joining them, it looks like this is going to take some... Active duty military may board at this time, followed by... said the staticky woman, putting her hand over the handset to help an interrupting customer at the podium, apparently not Michael Riley, unless he was a heavy-set black woman with a cane, before starting up again. Followed by Zone 1. Zone 1 may board at this time. So many silly words, so many detailed instructions, yet no one listened. This is going to take a while, Gil said, stretching. I'm going to find some coffee and learn another language. Hitzbra er aldinach, the woman said. Language translation applications were relatively inexpensive, if one had already acquired the interface to upload such programs. Yet language translation apps rarely made the bestseller list. One should assume such applications would raise the bar with these modern proselytes of absurdity, not lower it. Instead, it seemed to make everyone stupider, a word his ex-wife used to say. Gil sipped his paltry vanilla latte. This would be the last time he'd ever settle for an automated cup of coffee from one of the Starbucks machines. As he browsed through the selection of programs available at the AI Unlimited kiosk, a simple, unmanned touchscreen display mounted against the wall about three gates down from J87. Beneath the display was a scanner to read payment and a retractable cable that connected to one's DSI, or Digital Software Adaptation Interface. The top seller for the week was a flashbook of the Ray Bradbury classic, Fahrenheit 451. He smiled. A book about the end of all books. A world where books burned out of existence, only to be preserved indefinitely by those willing to memorize them. 
The ebook version Gil had seen 20 years ago had made him laugh as he mulled over the idea of paper pages turned slash burned to digital, but that was during the push for paper elimination. People still read then. Once the ebook craze dwindled, following the decline of ownership of printed works and illegalization of printing on paper, and people realized they could simply upload stories into their minds without needing to take the time to read, the concept of reading simply fell away, for most anyway. Gill still read and thoroughly enjoyed it, albeit the stories he read were digital in format. He saw it as a vacation from reality, to be engrossed within the pages, digital or not, of fiction immersed in characterization and in plot was a liberating experience. The line at his gate was still a mess, a half-mess now, but according to the wall clock, he had twenty minutes remaining to board. He had never tried a flash book. What was the point? Gil remembered some of Bradbury's book, the highlights really, such as firemen raiding houses to confiscate books and piling them into the streets before setting them on fire, and vague recollections of the classic books memorized word for word by a rebelling few. Most of his memories of the books seemed to have been burned as well, so Gill scanned his pavement and bought a copy. Why not? The screen displayed illustrated instructions, despite the simplicity. Gill followed along, taking the D-side cable and attaching the end to the port on his left wrist nearest the palm, and twisting until it locked in place. The screen awaited a button press in order to upload the purchase. Ray would be rolling over in his grave if he saw this. Perhaps he had envisioned it. Gil pressed the button and waited. Uploading transaction complete. Hmm, he said. Instantaneously, Gil remembered the missing pieces, the entire novel suddenly familiar to him. It had taken only a moment, and the words were there. It was a pleasure to burn, he recited to no one. It was a special pleasure to see things eaten, to see things blackened and changed, with the brass nozzle in his fist, with the great python spitting its venomous kerosene upon the world, the blood pounded in his hands, and his hands were the hands of some amazing conductor playing all the symphonies of blazing and burning to bring down the tatters and charcoal ruins of history. Hmm, the entire book. Gill, the technology proselyte. For the next month, the book would be his to borrow. Word for word. That's how the copyright-protected applications worked. The words still belonged to Bradbury's estate. Books and movies and music and all other forms of entertainment apps worked that way. Someone, somewhere, would receive a paltry stipend for this purchase. After the virtual rental, whatever Gill could remember would remain, but only as much as if he had read the book. The difference being... The reading experience was shortened from hours to milliseconds, which defeated the purpose of reading, in Gill's opinion. The long escape from reality reduced to a hiccup. Such an amazing book. Educational material was something different. Such knowledge belonged to no one in particular, which meant that the purchaser of these applications became the owner, with no expiration and with no permanent knowledge retained following the upload. Software uploaded to long-term memory as opposed to short-term memory, Gill supposed. A different part of the brain. This basically meant one thing. More money. 
Digital education courses were priced significantly higher than classes one could take in person. Language translation programs, for example, could be purchased on a temporary basis for travel and whatnot. With the purchaser capable of comprehending the spoken word of alternative languages, although unable to reiterate correctly, similar to inputting those words into a translator program, whereas language knowledge programs could be purchased on a permanent basis, with the purchaser capable of understanding the learned language indefinitely. But it was astoundingly expensive. Basic Spanish, the second most common language in the United States, was priced higher than it would cost a person to learn four years' worth of Spanish in college, and that was only for comprehension. To speak a language still required linguistic practice, learned muscle memory of the tongue and mouth, as well as phonological and morphological development to speak, read and write, although no one wrote anymore. These were things unable to upload through any sort of interface. Gil considered himself a somewhat wealthy man. He had worked laboriously over the years and felt he had respectively earned it, although his current savings could afford him only a single permanent language. If he so desired, that and his trip to Europe... He was running from life, he knew, but it was a much-needed vacation. It would help him forget. For the next three weeks, he traveled to Portugal, Spain, France, and then further northeast through Belgium, Amsterdam, Germany, and perhaps a stop at Denmark before crossing over to Sweden. The Baltimore-slash-Washington International Airport was his first destination, leaving in 15 minutes, and then a 13-hour non-stop flight to Lisbon. Gil touched the display to bring up the language translation programs and purchased 30-day rentals of Portuguese, Portuguese, Spanish, Espanol, French, La France, German, Deutsch, Swedish, Svenska, and Danish, Dansk. He still had the cable connected to his wrist, so Gil simply pressed the button Upload All and the matter was done. Hmm, he said again, not feeling any different. As a test, Gil changed the language setting on the kiosk to Spanish, Espanol, and all the wording changed. In the center of the display, there was a yes-no option, which he understood. Habla usted Espanol? Si? No. Technically, no, I do not speak Spanish, but why not? The words were there, and he recognized the phrase from his newly purchased memory. He pressed the button and said, Si, having heard the word countless times in his life. Seleccion en el menu siguiente, por favor. Please select from the menu below. That's incredible. He attempted repeating the phrase, but butchered the hell out of it, getting only the por favor at the end correct, another set of words he'd heard before, just like the French s'il vous plaît. Salida, he said, pressing the exit button. The line at his gate had transformed from chaotic to manageable. The Danish couple were hassled for the stroller, for not boarding earlier when they had called for families with young children. Gil didn't need a translator program to decipher the discordious gestures from the woman in the ugly blue uniform. He followed the Danish couple through the gate door and looked over his shoulder to a commotion at the AI Unlimited kiosk. A squad of uniformed men with assault rifles surrounded the device while two men in black suits inspected the screen. Others in suits wandered the terminal, fingers to the ear. One made eye contact with Gil before the door closed. 
Perhaps purchasing so many languages triggered in an investigation. That's how it sounded, at least. Gil recognized the dialect from the two sitting next to him on the plane, some sort of Indian vernacular, Hindi, Marathi, Bengali, or Punjabi, probably Hindi. The foreign words distracted his mind from the kiosk. The hypnotic rapidity of foreign words brought his thoughts to the past. Five years ago, Gil met a strikingly beautiful woman from Quebec, Nell. Although she spoke fluent English, the second language to her, she had to keep reminding Gil to speak more slowly so she could comprehend. Translation take time, Nell had said. He never realized how rapid English sounded to the world outside his bubble until he had met her. Not until she'd rattled off Le Francais to prove a point. Comment vas-tu? Je vais bien. Merci. Et toi? Comme si? Comme ça. Quoi de neuf? She had said. See, you understood only a few of those words. It seemed normal to me, but to you it seemed fast. Correct? Nell's last note to him read. Are you happy? Of course I'm happy, he remembered thinking then, taking the words out of context, not realizing she was saying goodbye. What does she think? I'm not? The two sitting next to him rambled untranslatable phrases. Even if he could understand, the words would probably get lost in translation. The younger of the two sounded cynical as he said, pointing to the other's fast food bag. Both men laughed. Gil laughed a little inside and smiled, recognizing only a single word from their conversation now probably the most recognized word shared amongst all cultures. After a brief sigh, the older of the two said, Realizing that Gil was eavesdropping, the older one looked at Gil and pointed a thumb the opposite direction and said, My little brother, he thinks I want to eat our mother. Ah, mothers give you milk and so do cows. That's his reasoning. Since I like quarter pounders with cheese, he said, lifting the bag, he thinks I butchered my own mother. That is not what I said. He thinks Gita says we shouldn't eat beef, even though it was written before we ever had McDonald's. Do not listen to him, said the other. Gita Kushnai Pole escaped better me. He's putting words in my mouth. He puts goat in his mouth. Hindustani people eat goat, and goats give milk. He has no justification for his reasoning. Do you eat goat? Gil shrugged. I can't say I've ever had the opportunity to eat goat. It's like old beef, he said, removing the hamburger from the bag. He unwrapped half of it and took a big, slow bite in front of his brother. After washing it down with a soda, he continued, That was much tastier than goat, whether or not the Gita says so. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff, said the scratchy voice of the pilot. The plane lurched as it pushed back from the gate. Gil had read somewhere that planes did not have a means of moving in reverse, so they had to be pushed by something more primitive, a ground-based vehicle, something capable of bi-directional movement, translating reverse, one could say. 
Soon they were in the air, the two brothers talking once again in Hindi. Should have picked up that language too, Gil thought. He loved theoretical and religious arguments, something everyone struggled with. The struggle intrigued him. When things quieted down between the two, Gil asked the older brother, Where you're from, do they still teach writing? I am from California, so no. Ah, sorry. Public schools in the United States, following the wake of other nations, had stopped teaching writing over two decades ago. Instead, language education focused on typing, whether by keyboards or touchscreens. The world had quickly migrated to a digital age. Pencils and pens were a rarity, unless purchased from art supply stores, and writing on physical paper was basically unheard of. Cursive had been the first to go. Schools simply stopped teaching it, and then handwriting altogether. The act of writing was quickly becoming a lost skill. But if you mean India, the answer is also no. It's a shame, really. Yes, it is. But like with all change, we can choose not to accept it. Do you write? I write every day, at least a page. My mother, she always encouraged writing, and she saw it coming. A long time ago, she said to me, Soon, the world will no longer have a need for books or writing of any kind. For her last birthday, a long time ago, I bought her one of those Kindle devices, one of the first e-books. She unwrapped it, held it like fragile glass, and said, What in God's name is this? I told her what it was, and what it could do, and what I thought it meant for the future of books. I had preloaded it with ten or so novels. She used it once, I think, but said she'd rather stick to book books, that she liked the feel of them, the smell of their pages. What did she do when they stopped printing books? She said no one writes worth a damn anymore, and that the real writers had created enough books for generations of people to read. We don't need new books anymore, she said. Everything that can be written has been written. Everything new is just plagiarized yarns of ideas past. Nothing new is original. What does it you write? My own unoriginal ideas, you could say. She gave me these journals years ago, black leather bound with about 200 pages each. I'm not sure where she found them, but she gave me about 20. I filled up five so far. Who knows, maybe someday I'll do something with them. Do you have a pen? Gil carried one in his shirt pocket, nearly confiscated as a weapon after setting off security. He pulled it free, clicked the end, and handed it to him. My brother, he said, again pointing with his thumb. He cannot write. He can copy what he sees. He likes drawing shapes, but he cannot really write. Our mother taught me and my sisters, though. My grammar is horrible, I must warn you. On the back of his drink napkin, he wrote in smooth Hindi script. It's beautiful. What does it mean? Man will never be left without language. Halfway through Gill's ginger ale and a showing of some unfunny romantic comedy on the seat monitors, soundless because he didn't want to spend the money for a set of disposable headphones and certainly not the type of movie he wanted to be watching, the coffee from earlier wanted out of him. Whenever he needed to use the restroom on flights, it always seemed he was never alone. A line of three needed to un-Starbucks their bladders. He excused himself as he squeezed by the Indian brothers and placed himself at the end of the line, feeling somewhat awkward blocking the passengers in their seats. Though airline restroom etiquette approved of this behavior, he always felt sorry for those sitting closest to the lavatory. As he moved up the aisle, he eavesdropped conversations, hoping to hear one of the languages he had purchased so he could figure out how the translation process worked. Most passengers were either engrossed in the movie, 
occupied with personal handheld devices, spoke in English, or were otherwise content with silence. That's what the world's becoming, Gil thought. Silent. Second in line, after a dance with a slightly overweight fellow returning to his seat, he noticed the happy Danish couple at the back of the plane. The applications worked remarkably well. As Gil moved closer, he was able to understand their conversation completely, as if by telepathy, or as if translated by a teleprompter within his head. Yai beget den file, the beautiful woman said. I made a mistake. They kept man vis rolisi. I'll say. Well, men do. What do you mean? Yasea. What I am saying. Men do iyo nut tila til ma viskal kame veda. But you have to forgive me if we are to move on. Forgive her for what? What could she have possibly done? She touched her husband's hand, but he pulled away and turned to the window. She looked directly at Gil then, but she didn't smile this time, although he could tell she recognized his face and wanted to smile. She was incapable. He felt pity and then guilt for listening in to this otherwise private conversation. They were in the middle of going through what he had gone through only months before with Nell. Their body language, or lack thereof, told him they had fallen apart. They were at the end of something that was once possibly wonderful. De vil ike, oye kan, the Danish man said. I don't know if I can do that. Yeme vil vedusa. Well, what do you want, then? Li nu vil jeg bare have, at du ikke siger nu. Right now, I want you to not say anything. The Danish couple's fairy tale relationship was just that. A fairy tale. Whether or not Gil wanted to listen to the conversation, he was going to hear it and understand it. From their meeting at the gate, they were under the impression that he couldn't comprehend their language, and they most likely assumed others on the plane were unable to either, based on their lack of reaction, and they were right to think so. Gil absorbed their words, emotionally even, and it felt wrong, but he couldn't turn it off. He focused his attention elsewhere pretending ignorance, looking to the signs that read no smoking and no e-smoking, to their personal air vents and to the lit flight attendant call buttons and to the overhead compartments, anything to hold his attention other than the couple. He wanted to return to his seat, to perhaps hold his bladder a while longer, but the line had filled in behind him and he was now claustrophobically challenged. If he could turn back time, he returned the damn language. Hanuop, ele begofal, vi unkummenska, o visi vi eke can tilgive for enda viso. Come on, everybody makes mistakes. We are only human, and if we can't forgive, then where do we end? Perhaps she had cheated on him, but it was none of Gil's business. He massaged his temples, trying not to listen, trying not to remember Nell trying instead to recall the back of the sky mall digizine from the pouch in his seat, an advertisement for some kind of perfume with a horizontal half-naked couple on a beach, with a caption beneath proclaiming Collision, the name of the perfume, and a tide frozen in time, indefinitely lapping at their bodies. A fake perfect happy, half-naked couple, colliding in the sand in halftones with the illuminated heart-shaped bottle in the foreground, yet the words, Tinu still, he said. Be quiet. Words ever so apposite. So de-e-de? 
So that's it then? Meske? Maybe. Skelgayo? Do you want me to leave? He had said those same words to Nell. Different words, but the same words. Noel gange urfal sostor. At the ike kan del gives. Will do ike nok til stile. Ya abru for tanga. Sometimes mistakes are so big that they cannot be forgiven. Please be quiet. I need to think. Unskund. Higmena de verkling. Vis yaya kuna gera deo? Via yaya gera de. Unskund. I'm sorry. I really mean it. If I could do it over, I would. I'm sorry. Talk. Thanks. Gil shuffled forward the approximate space of another body, and the Danish woman caught Gil trying not to look at her, and she smiled. But the passion hidden deep within that smile did not need translation. Passion meant suffering, and he saw that in her eyes. She needed one hand within the other and fidgeted. Although her eyes were dry, he could see hurt welling inside of tears and something else. She turned to her husband, but his attention was given to the white blanket of cloud out the window, so she focused on the child between them, and that's when the corners of her mouth curled and she silently cried, a single tear dripping onto her lap. And that was the primal language, action and reaction, feeling, emotion. The baby cooing earlier, and the mother's instinctual response of tending to a child too young for dialogue, just goo-goos and gagas and other nonsense noises, pets cuddling when you're sick, acting sad when you're sad, happy when you're happy, a baby crying because another baby is crying, sadness answering sadness, anger countering anger, joy begetting joy, a smile simply met with another smile, Tongue only wrought confusion. Vierkoland iolisum iventran, she had said to Gil at the gate. He understood this now. People often lived the fairy tale life, masking misery with fantastic ideals of happiness. He had thought the words sounded beautiful then. Now they sounded terrible. They sounded familiar. Maybe people don't want to understand, Gil remembered thinking. He offered the woman a crooked smile, hoping she'd look up from her sorrow long enough to understood that he understood, her position, that is, because he had been there before and seen empathy, something they could communicate without the need for words. I don't want them anymore. He had made the connecting flight in Washington slash Baltimore and touched down in Portugal a great while later, unable to sleep. His mind would not shut off. It seemed that every conversation required his attention, whether he wanted to hear it or not, no matter the language. To keep his mind distracted from the endless words translating through his mind, mixtures of Spanish, Portuguese, English, French. As he exited the Lisbon terminal, Gil referenced his purchased copy of Fahrenheit 451, recalling and reciting the words as if he'd memorized the novel like one of its many characters. The woman's hand twitched on a single matchstick, he said. The fumes of kerosene bloomed up about her, felt the hidden book pound like a heart against his chest. A woman wanted his attention, to ask him something, directions perhaps. He kept walking. Silly words, silly words, silly, awful, hurting words. Gil skipped ahead to one of his favorite parts, to the end. And when it came to his turn... 
What could he say? What could he offer on a day like this to make the trip a little easier? To everything there is a season, yes, a time to break dawn and a time to build up, yes, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, yes, all that. But what else? What else? Something. Something. Taxis were everywhere, hailing him down. Dozens of stark white Mercedes sedans with lit taxi roof ornaments lined the curb. Americano! Americano! Senor! You need a taxi? The man said in a rough mix of Portuguese and English. Did he look that American? Que hotel? Which hotel? Gil said. He had made a note of it on his cell phone. Yes, it's, uh, here. Here it is. Sofitel Lisbon, Liberdade. Sofitel Lisbon. Nice. Cinco Estrellas. The driver held out his hand. Dar. Give. Gil stood there a moment perplexed. Give? The man eagerly shook his hand for the luggage, and then Gil understood his meaning, again without needing the words, which didn't seem to do him much good even when translated for him. Already he was having trouble keeping up. Cinco Estrellas, the man had said, meaning the hotel. Five stars. Oh yes, thank you, he said, handing over his suitcases. Translation take time, Nell's voice hunted. Obrigado. Thank you. Obrigado, Gil said. The Mercedes trunk opened and his luggage was haphazardly thrown inside. When the lid slammed shut, the driver circled around the vehicle and jumped in the driver's seat, the engine coming to life. Gil made his way into the back seat, where he was surprised to find a man already sitting next to him. Hey. Hey. Gil nodded and the man nodded. The doors closed, and that was that. And then something hot speared his leg, electric in a way that made his muscles spasm and his jaw clamp. Seraida. He said, Be still. The man next to him had buried the needle of a large syringe deep into Gil's thigh the moment the taxi sped away. The barrel stuck from his leg like the hilt of a knife, the size of an adrenaline shot shoved into his chest to jolt lifeless bodies back to life, but this did the opposite. Gil controlled only his eyes, the rest of his body was paralyzed, not numb, because he could feel the clear liquid burning down his leg, up into his groin, and blossoming within his chest. The sensation crawled up his neck, and he was rigid. He had clenched his teeth at the initial agony, and now his mouth was stuck shut, lips tight, as if cement had coursed through his veins and instantly hardened. Gil screamed through his face to the rearview mirror, to the reflection of the taxi driver, but the taxi driver smiled, and repositioned the mirror so Gil stared at himself. They were going to jack him, and there was nothing he could do about it. The man in the seat next to him felt Gil's pocket and pulled out his handheld. He simply held the facial recognition screen in front of Gil's face. Within seconds, he brought up Gil's digital passport and banking information and scanned all of it with a device attached to an antiquated touchscreen cell phone of his own. We are sorry to do this to you, Americano. You have made recent purchases, no? Traduzo para lingua. Language translation. A sealed mouth made untranslatable noises. 
or amigo entende portuguese, Abraham. Entende, friend? said the driver. Abraham didn't translate to anything. It was his name. Bad luck for you, mi amigo, said the man next to him. He held a handheld to Gil's face, too close to focus. You bought something you weren't supposed to, Dados Sensivis, that cannot leave this car. Sensitive data. Lamentamos muerto, mio amigo, the driver said. We are very sorry, my friend. The display turned white, and then it was gone, black, powerless, and Gil knew it had been wiped clean, destroyed. Fazir a connexao, the driver said. Make the connection. Vamos. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, Abraham said. Apagalo. Erase him. The most frightening phrase Gil had ever heard. Two words. No, no, no. His peripheral revealed Abraham preparing a black box, an old term used for unethical devices used by computer hackers long ago. The plain chassis hid the interior complexion. Despite technological evolution, the device this man readied looked simple. A slate black, unmarked metal box with nothing more than an interface on either side. He attached a cable to the D-side port on Gill's wrist and connected the other end to the black box. The antiquated touchscreen cell phone connected to the other interface from which he could decode the digital makeup of whatever he planned to wipe from Gill's mind. How much could he see? What could he erase? And then the man told him. Language translation app Portuguese. Language translation app Espanol. Language translation app La Francais, Dutch, Fenske, Dansk. You must like languages, mi amigo. Ah, flashbook. Fahrenheit 451. Bon livro. Good book. I am the fireman. Vamos, said the driver. The man next to him worked reversely through a list of languages, swiping his finger across each of the programs to erase them. Dansk, Edo. Gone. Svenska, Edo. Deutsch, Edo. La France, Edo. Espanol, Edo. His fingers simply flicked them away. Portuguese, he said, and then paused. I take this one. You no longer end in there. No se preocupe. Don't worry. I will let you keep on livro to have until you pass. But we'll scramble the rest. Entender scramble? Like ovos. The man intoned scrambling eggs over the device. Apagalo. Erase him. Gil fully comprehended the meaning of the driver's use of those words and now feared them even more. They planned to erase Gil's memory, not just the applications he had purchased recently or past purchases he had made over the years, but everything about him. Abraham leaned in close. Wrong place, wrong time, mi amigo. We have to destroy it all. You will not feel a thing, il promito. I promise. Portuguese, Edo, he said, swiping his finger one last time, and it was gone. All of his learned languages were gone. A small part of Gil welcomed losing the words. Fazelo, 
said the driver. No translation. No me aprese. Esto y difícil. Vos ya fez eso antes. Sem veces. Foreign words. Once again, the driver pulled the car into an empty alley. They gently carried Gil's numb body and set him on the pavement. Immobile, he faced the sun as they poured flammables over him and all of his belongings. Kerosene is nothing but perfume to me. Gil pulled from the book. Abraham tapped on the device still connected to the port on Gil's wrist, deleting, erasing, doing something. Lamentamos muerto, mi amigo. Soon it would. Be gone. Perhaps a virus shot through the mind, too. Sinto mioto, one of them said. Nell. Part 1. The Hearth and the Salamander. It was a pleasure to burn. It was a special pleasure to see things eaten, to see things blackened and changed. With the brass nozzle in his fist, with the great python spitting its venomous kerosene upon the world, the blood pounded in his hands, and his hands were the hands of some amazing conductor playing all the symphonies of blazing and burning to bring down the tatters and charcoal ruins of history. End. Thank you for that, Michael. I want to read just a little jot at the end of the story, which isn't recorded, in which Michael says special thanks to Trini Einspor for writing and translating those beautiful Danish words, to Chris Prasad for offering an interesting conversation in Hindi, to Gary A. Bronbeck, Thomas F. Mondelion, F. Paul Wilson, and Douglas E. Winter for their guidance with this story, and to Ray Bradbury for changing the world with words that will never be forgotten. To which he adds, also Mort Castle offered his assistance in obtaining these permissions from the Bradbury estate, so if all else fails, blame him. I'm sure no one will blame Mort. Primal Tongue was read for us tonight by Drake Vaughn. Drake is another writer-narrator of which we are so pleased here at Tales to Terrify. He is the author of The Zombie Generation and many other pieces of dark or crinkled fiction, as he describes his work. His writing is a blend of horror, dark fantasy, and speculative fiction with a heavy psychological bent. He lives in Santa Monica, California with his wife and a black cat named Shadow, whom he is certain has come back from the dead a number of times. An anthology of his short fiction, The Carvings Collection, is now available on Amazon. And for tonight's reading, he apologizes for mispronunciations of the many and varied languages used throughout the story, especially the English ones. He says that you may feel free to follow him on Twitter or to like him on Facebook for recent updates. But best of all, Buy his books on Amazon. 
and that children of the night will be that. I would have you be upstanding, gather ye your slickers and wellies, bundle up, and be off with you. As you don your garb, I'll remind you that we are now two-thirds of our way through the year's Bram Stoker-nominated short fiction tales, and next week, Friday night, we will present the final two. On the Saturday following will be the awards in Portland, Oregon. I cannot say who will win. I do not know who will win. Well, we'll see, won't we? Now, you ready? As mentioned, it has been a week of monsoonish rains here in Chicago, in the District of Wonders, so be careful of those rain-slicked side streets. There's no tannin, slippery leaf mulch underfoot, but probably some winter detritus hovers about. But aren't the streets lovely? Wet with rain, recent and pooled from the past, street and alley light kicks back nicely from it. Hmm? Shows the rats in full rat run. It's not horribly cold, but still there's a chill enough in the air to shiver your timbers for late-night walking. And, as I said before, we now have some new critters in the area. Elves, sorcerers, kobolds, knights templar, mages, and dragons. Dragons. My old nighttime fear ever since I learned of dragons. Well, you'll make it home. Dragons are probably not your nighttime fear. Just keep your eyes open, and when you see the home light, make a dash, climb the stairs, strip your wet things, and crawl into bed with the cat. Snuggle for warmth, but still. Keep your eyes and ears open, as long as you can, before sleep takes you. It's in bed that I always imagined the dragon would come, from that narrow space between the wall and the bed. I always listened and listened, and that always led to pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>